Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equity, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to thank our friends at City AM for their continued support of Diversity Podcast with a dedicated page on their website, publishing and promoting both our episodes and our supporting blog series so their readers can stay on the very top of the latest diversity and inclusion debate. Now, you may want to check out their own podcast called The City View for all the latest news and opinion from the city, because we at Diversity Podcast are huge fans. Now, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lynn Yu and Rana Mitter. Let me introduce both our guests to you. Lin Yu is a senior executive at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, responsible for managing and growing key relationships across UK institutional investors. As a senior leader of mainland Chinese origin in London, she helps elevate women and ethnic minorities in the workplace. Lynn has won many accolades and awards, most notably recognized in the Heroes 100 Women Future Leaders by Yahoo Finance for three consecutive years. And she is the winner of the Excellence in Banking Award at the Chinese Business Leaders Award. A graduate of experimental psychology from Oxford University, Lynn is also passionate about applying psychology and neuroscience in the workplace and making life skills accessible to all. I should point out in my remarks that I mentioned she works at Goldman Sachs. And I want to stress that her views are her own, not representative of those at the bank. So Lynn, wonderful you could join us. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And our second guest today is Rana Mitter. Rana Mitter, OBE, FBA, is a professor in the history of politics of modern China and a fellow of St. Cross College at the University of Oxford. He is a regular commentator on China in the media and forums all around the world, including at the World Economic Forum at Davos. He's widely published and his recent article co-authored with Elspeth Johnson entitled What the West Gets Wrong About China is available on the Harvard Business Review and his documentary on contemporary Chinese politics, Meanwhile in Beijing, is available on BBC Sounds. And that's just to name a few of his published accomplishments as he is the author of several books and he was also named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect. So, Rana, it's a joy to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Julia, it's a huge pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for your welcome. So it's wonderful to have you both on the show. And, you know, I always love to spend a bit of time with our guests just to really understand what you're focused on right now. Lynn, can I come to you first of all? What is your focus? I'm actually on maternity leave at the moment. So it is such an interesting time, and I'm really enjoying it with my children, which is so um, incredibly precious. But I think this also provided a distance being away from work. And that has given me this time and space to reflect on my experience as a Chinese woman working in the city. You know, they say when a child is born, so is the mother. That can be so true in my case. So for me, for 2022, I see this as a great opportunity to really embrace my different identities as a professional, as a mom, as a carer, as a partner, as a woman, as an ethnic minority, as an advocate, just to name a few, but really to bring it together to make an impact. 
And then, um, you know, I thought about what that means in practice, for example, and then just to quickly give you a little bit of context, because growing up in mainland China under the one-child policy, our life was just synonymous with this unprecedented changes. Imagine every single day of your life is better than yesterday. That effectively captures the essence of our experience. So when I look at what we do in the city, a large part of it is to navigate future investment opportunities. You know, what are the mega trends that matter in the coming decade? And there are many of them, but often it comes down to a few themes such as technology innovation, demographics such as millennials, and ESG, this environmental, social, and governance. So as investors, we want to get to the right side of these disruptions as opposed to being disrupted. But from where I see it, these trends are also very connected to the theme of China, where it's already leading a lot of the innovation on 5G and AI. It has a huge commitment to the global sustainable future. And there are 450 million Chinese millennials. That's a number that's bigger than the US and European millennials combined. So I think being part of this millennials generation provides a tremendous opportunity because the Chinese millennials are a lot similar to the Western counterparts. We're also value-led tech-savvy, face far less constraint and is so different from the previous generation. So part of my focus for this year um, is really to synergize this intersection of culture and business and to bring us to be part of the diversity dialogue, to join forces, to stop Asian hate, make Black Lives Matter, make me to count. So I think it's really exciting for the year. Well, there's so much in that I'm really keen to get, to get into as we go through the conversation for sure. And, and what a wonderful way to frame everything that's on your mind at the moment. And thank you, Borkas, through not only what this means for you personally, but also the macro consideration as well. How wonderful. Um, Rana, can I ask you the same question? What, what is your focus at right now? Absolutely. Well, after hearing what Lynn's been up to, I think we'll beat that really. I've been actually concentrating quite a bit on the recent past. Uh, I think I confessed at the beginning where you got the confession out of me, Julia, that I'm a historian by training, although I think a lot about contemporary China and its place in the world. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that in just a few minutes. There's a particular historical event that this year, 2022, marks, which is 50 years since the really epochal visit of US President Richard Nixon to China in uh, February 1972, in fact, it uh, it was. And the reason this has been on my mind in the last you know, few weeks and months is that I do think it's a really momentous anniversary, because so much of what is going on in the world today, which is about the relationship between the United States and China, and in which institutions like the City of London, which of course is you know, not located in either, but sits very much in a sort of position of mediation, you might say, between the, the two, have their present roles shaped by a whole variety of you know, seismic changes that came off the back of that moment when Richard Nixon touched down at the airport in Beijing and essentially helped to kickstart that new relationship between China and America. It's been on my mind in particular for a couple of more selfish reasons. I've been doing a bit of writing and also broadcasting about the event. So a documentary that I've made, which has been on BBC Radio 4 and is on BBC Sounds, I'm afraid with a not very original title, The Great Wall, but I promise you that the content is more original than the title, has talked to some people I was really, really excited to talk to. A lot of the US players who were really central over half a century 
in making that relationship work one way or another. I'm talking about people like Robert Zellick, who was president of the World Bank during the presidency of George W. Bush. I'm talking about H.R. McMaster, who was national security advisor to Donald Trump, and of course, in some ways, has been shaping that perhaps more confrontational uh, view of China that's there in the US. And also talking to a think tanker, Wang Huayao, based in Beijing, who of course is of that sort of age where he was young enough to remember the Nixon visit as a young man when Nixon came to China, and is now quite a senior advisor on political affairs in Beijing. So the feeling that this is a sort of conversation that, of course, started back in the 1970s, but in some ways really lies underneath everything that we do in China, America, China, Western relations today. And as a historian, one of the things that always gives me great joy is looking at aspects of the past and trying to link them to the present. Well, we'll certainly put a link to the documentary on the website as well and in all our marketing as well. That sounds sounds really, really fascinating. I can't wait to have a listen, actually. But we must proceed with our own podcast. <laughs> now, I do want to get into some early thoughts, actually, in our discussion about maybe some of the misconceptions that exist about China. And I commented deliberately from that angle because it's often a great way to frame, bust some myths and also to frame some realities as well. Some of these, of course, may well be rooted in unconscious bias as well. And I wonder what the West does get wrong about China. Rana, can I come to you first? Sure. Well, this is the subject of an article I co-wrote with an old friend and senior business executive, Elspeth Johnson, for the Harvard Business Review, which asked this very central question that we've both been asked over and over again by executives in a whole variety of areas, you know, manufacturing services and elsewhere. Why is it when we go into China and try and work with the culture, work out how the business environment works, we keep on running up against things that don't really seem to make sense to, to us. So it came from that background, bringing together historian and someone very much involved with, with, with business to ask that question. And I would say, summarized very simply, there are three points that we wanted to make. And I'm sure that you, Lynn, and I will kind of discuss a bit further, you know, where the detail of misunderstandings often come from. The first one, I think, is an assumption that existed for a very long time, particularly in the era in which I think we've all been growing up and have been professionals in a quite globalized world. The idea that the sort of world that's shaped by the liberal world since the end of the Cold War, the 1990s, 2000s, in which economics, democratization, and all of these historical forces are sort of inevitable that any country that doesn't accord to those particular norms is in some ways an outlier. Now, this isn't about whether those systems are good or bad. We can and should discuss those issues. This is just meant to be an analytical statement that the assumption that economic change and democratization went hand in hand, and that was the normal path, was one that an awful lot of people from an awful lot of parts of the world have shared for a couple of decades. The second point that flows from that is an assumption, this is one that frankly is more difficult for many Westerners, that governments that are authoritarian and I have no hesitation in saying that I think you know China pretty clearly fulfills the definition of authoritarian government and society, is one that can't be legitimate to its own people and in its own right. It's assumed that there's a sort of democracy waiting to kind of burst out from under the surface if you just let it. And that isn't the way in which either the leading elite, naturally, but also actually many, many wider people who are emerging in the Chinese middle class think about their own society. Now, again, you may say that's right or wrong. That's a moral question. But as an analytical question, I think it's really important to understand that difference of view. At least the final element, which is much more directly involved with where businesses often, I think, get it wrong, which is an assumption that 
the investment habits, the work habits, the choices in economic and social terms of ordinary Chinese, and I'm thinking mainly of middle-class Chinese, but also of the kind of huge uh, population of rural China as well, is in some ways going to be very similar to those in almost any other of the top 10 economies in the world. And actually, and again, we'll talk about some more detail later, I think, but to get the top line on that, I would say that as a historian, understanding the history of China over that period I mentioned at the beginning, the last half century or so, one of the most turbulent roller coaster like back and forth, you know, histories of any country in the world, and certainly the most turbulent amongst any of the top 10 economies in the world, makes you realize that actually people who've lived through that and eventually got to the stage, which Lynn mentioned, that for many people, you know, each day is perhaps better than, than the last, not something that everyone would say in, in every society necessarily, not true for all Chinese, but true for, for many. That's an important background point in terms of understanding the choices that you as an outside business person may choose to make. That's enormously helpful. That's enormously helpful. And I wonder if I could bring you in here, Lynn, because when we think about the context of diversity and inclusion, and particularly sort of picking up on the, the last point that Ron was making, I'd love to get your thoughts about when we think about cultural nuances, what must leaders pay attention to internationally about working with Chinese nationals in their organisations? And, and I think I, I, I would take that in any direction you like, whether that is local, regional, international global. Maybe I can share with you an example first, because um, this is one of the most striking experiences that I have come to realize, which was this different construct of leadership. Because I think in China, the construct is we have very big leaders. And then uh, so the power distance between, you know, somebody ordinary and the leaders very, very large. But, you know, as I learned in the West, especially the U.S. firms, um, there is this common belief that the squeaky wheels get degrees. Whereas in China, we believe in the direct opposite. That means the loudest duck gets shot. So what does it mean for the kind of Chinese professionals working in that environment? I certainly remember when I first started out, about six months into the role, I was called into a room by a senior person who said, Lin, I've noticed something. You seem to have some good ideas one-on-one, but how come you never speak up in team meetings? I was genuinely so shocked by that question because to me, it was very natural to pay respect to more senior members of the team. But he said, you know, look, it doesn't work like this here. You have to speak up. So I tried it. The first time I remember my heart was just pounding so badly because it went against everything I believed in. I was this duck that was about to get shot. But nevertheless, I think I persisted. And then about six months later, I was called into the same room by the same person who said, uh, Lynn, I've noticed something. You spoke up and you showed me absolutely no respect now. And that was great. So I guess you know, I'm not suggesting anyone to disrespect a senior person. It's a career strategy that can be dangerous. But I think it highlights something that is quite fundamental to psychology and diversity. Because when I didn't speak up in meetings, the three things are happening in my head. One is I'm waiting for my cue to speak because we were told not to talk over each other. Two, I'm paying my respect. We don't want to be the loudest duck. And three is I don't want to give half-baked comments because we were told to only speak up when answers are perfect. And it took me a long time to understand how others think of me when I didn't speak because they also have three thoughts. One is I don't have views. Two is I'm not confident. Three is I have poor communication skills. 
And then those are pretty damaging perceptions. And then I think that can be more wrong in terms of the underlying abilities. So I think for the organizations to be inclusive, this awareness or understanding of different points of view is really critical. So we don't jump to the conclusions to their abilities. And then also just very quickly to touch on the psychology piece. And then, because I think behavior science is going to be hugely helpful here. Because um, Julia, you mentioned diversity as is very cool. This is about change. So we're asking people to have a different response to other people. But the reality is we're hardwired to react to people who are different to us. Because that was evolution. You know, people who are different often represent danger, which could current our survival. So like any changes we want to make, we wanted to almost learn to rewire our automatic responses. And the key is really to create the space between the stimulus and your existing response. So in the context of diversity, this awareness and understanding of other people, that can really help you to pause, to think and react differently. And the other part of making changes work, as we know from behavior science, is to make it into habits. You know, some of the small incremental changes that have to be easy, accessible and desirable because otherwise we will fail. So in terms of the diversity, I think everyone can really start just cultivating small behavior changes. And that will ripple through your entire conduct and in turn that will influence your environment. And, you know, we talk a lot on the show about enlightened leaders and the fact that this is a generation of enlightened leaders and rising stars, as well as also of clearly more seasoned leaders as well. And, and it's very interesting listening to your remarks there about recognising what's going through the mind of an employee of Chinese heritage when they are contributing in the workplace. There's one thing that does bother me quite a lot, which is this moniker that we have put on. Well, it's the word BAME, B-A-M-E. And I'm... Wondered if I could just just very quickly, if I may, just get your your thoughts and your your remarks here, because we have to recognise that within the Chinese community, of course, there is a great diversity, and I think they're also about China, but also Hong Kong Chinese and also other Chinese groups. Linda, are there any ethnic minority communities that have told you they're not particularly comfortable with BAME as a moniker? And I wonder, does that encompass the fullness of the community in your mind? It's such an excellent point because growing up in China, we thought we were Asian. So it was a huge surprise to find out that, you know, we are at least not the default Asian in the UK. So I think, you know, in terms of, you know, just within the Chinese communities, you mentioned some of this already, that the the huge difference in background is quite um, significant because the British-born Chinese, for example, you know, their parents are from Hong Kong and their identity is mostly British. Then you have Hong Kong Chinese and their experience very much linked to being part of the UK colony. Then you have Taiwan, that is a relatively new democracy. You have Singapore and then to a less extent, Malaysia. That is really a multicultural society with a Chinese representation. Then you have this mainland Chinese people like ourselves. And then not so long ago, that was communism. So if you, so we look the same, but the environment we grew up couldn't be more different. And if you add, you know, the other Asian communities, I think there are at least 20 different cultures originating from East Asia, Southeast Asia and South Asia. So in terms of background, that consists of refugees, children of immigrants, individuals who are first generations. So this is the group that has really great income disparity, wealth distribution and educational attainment. So I guess this term Asian that is not really capturing 
the richness of the underlying cultures, the people and its communities. Thank you for sort of painting the spectrum, if you like, and you say that adds up to 20 plus different cultures. Monica, can I bring you in here, just your thoughts about, there's a word BAME, I mean, it's designed to increase inclusion in financial services, but does that work? Has it? Do you believe it achieves that end? I think it may have served a purpose for a while, but I think things are moving on a bit. And I have to say, many of the people I know who have to engage with the term do find it somewhat discomforting because it does seem to squash together an awful lot of things that don't necessarily always have a shared experience. I mean, I should explain for the benefit of those who are listening that I am of what would be called, I guess, the majority Asian heritage in the UK in that I'm of Indian slash South Asian background. I guess I'm slightly unusual in that I work on China on a regular basis, but I think that's the kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, intersection of diversity that I'm sure we should be encouraging more of. And uh, I suspect there will, there will be quite a few like me coming along in, in future as China continues to be of more, uh, more importance. I think that the really important thing is not just to try and get the terms right as if sort of incantating the correct phraseology is the important thing, but under understanding some of the important narratives that lie behind them. As we've said more than once, I know that your podcast does a wonderful job in in stressing, uh, Julia, stories about exclusion, not, I think, to the kind of victimological stories that I know particularly the Chinese community is really in some ways rather allergic to, you know, they want to talk about stories of success, I generally find, not stories of being cut out, you know, having difficulties and overcoming them. But at the same time, a recognition, I think this is the the key thing, and it's the good intent behind terms like that, that the starting point for so many communities has not been the same. And of course, remembering many of the other elements, I mean, people have brought up recently, and you know, I'm sure this has come up quite often on your podcasts uh, as well, uh, Julia, questions of class, as well as questions of race and gender. And it is one of the areas where sometimes it's as if these are separated. But we should remember that coming from working class backgrounds of people of colour or BAME, whatever you wanted to term, also have differences of engagement compared to, say, the more impeccably middle class members of the black ethnic minority communities, who, of course, have their own stories of overcoming difficulties, but they won't necessarily be the same ones as those who come from class backgrounds that may be quite different. So it's a complex story, as you know very well. Absolutely. And I wonder if this is just a sort of important moment to just flag to the audience that we are wise and aware to the reality about Asian hate crime that is going on at the moment. In fact, we had a particular episode last year, and I would encourage listeners to to go back and find that on our website, because uh, I think we have to recognise that uh, actually it's come up lightly in this conversation, but it's an aspect that we take very, very seriously. And thank thank you for your thoughts on that, Ronald, because I I do, um, as you say, it comes from a good place, but actually the reality of the world has shifted and it is it is multi-layered and has many nuances to it. Um, Lena, we've talked about intersectionality a little in the discussion so far. I would love to kind of think about, I don't know, inclusion, intersectionality, and also progression as well. I, I mentioned in the opening about your, your incredible, not surprising accolades in, in your career. And I just wondered when you think about supporting the ascension of women in the workplace, also in the background of having this experience of the great resignation, what advice do you give women of colour at different stages of their career within this weird and wonderful world that is financial services? 
I think maybe the first point I will share is this impact of intersectionality. Because uh, within the Asian community, for example, there is a term called bamboo ceiling. That is really to describe this group has the lowest chance of rising to management. But actually, if you look closer, it's very much about the East Asians that are having the lowest chance of being promoted while it's having the highest chance of being hired, whereas the South Asians are doing much better. So when it comes to this bamboo ceiling, for example, for Chinese women, the culture factor is almost four times worse than the gender factor, according to Ascent, which is a U.S. think tank. So it's almost a luxury to be considered as a woman because uh, most of the time, the other factor, as many women of intersectionality would face, is more dominating when it comes to you know, how we are perceived. But in terms of uh, advice, I think maybe um, if it helps, I can share some of the pivotal moments that have shaped my thinking, especially in the context of diversity so far. Because firstly, as a woman who takes both the race and the gender box, I thought that I was just so different from other people. But what really helped me was to shift my focus from, say, this 20% that I might be different from other people. I started to notice that 80% I'm the same as everyone else. And that starting point of looking for commonalities, it was hugely liberating because for women who are often having this intersectionality uh, attached to them, they can be the only person who represent that difference all the time when they walk into a room. So to recognize the commonalities, it was really like a way to be lifted from my chest, knowing that you don't have to represent all the time. And the second point was really, as I mentioned earlier, the decoding the influence of our behavior. So, you know, when I didn't speak up in meetings, that wasn't me, right? That was what my culture was telling me to do. So I guess now that means I have a choice and there's nothing wrong with me or my ability. So with that, I think that can really help me focus on what really needs to change, which is my style. That is a set of behavior changes that we can all do, which is a lot easier than what I had in mind, which was this feeling that I need to change who I am to conform to be successful. And the last point I really wanted to share um, this moment of um, my career is to realize it's not enough to just lean in. Because if you look at uh, organizations, when they were set up, say, 100 years ago, they didn't have everyone in mind. They had this ideal worker that is closely linked to a profile of white middle-class straight men. So the more you fit with this archetype, the easier it is for you to find sponsor, access to networks, be seen as a leader. And the opposite is also true. The more you deviate from this, then the harder it is for you. So I guess for women, for women of color, we typically internalize this problem. We think we need to be fixed. But in fact, it was a system that didn't have everyone in mind. So my last point is really that it's not enough to just lean in. We wanted to not only adapt ourselves to work, but also drive changes to the system that didn't have us in mind in the first place. Well, Rana, let me let me bring you in here because I would love to hear your response to to some of Lynn's remarks, <laughs> there, remarks there, and also, you know, as from your research and from all of your conversations, your interviews, and your you know your academic work, is is anything you would add or respond to in in Lynn's remarks? Yes, I'd like to add one word, or perhaps a couple of words, at the back of the one word. But the one word is 
history. Because when I hear Lynn's story, I'm obviously I know her as a friend and someone whose personal story I've known and found very inspiring, but also it's an occupational hazard for a historian, I'm afraid. I think of her in context as well, because she's the product of a huge number of changes that have affected China very distinctively, and also in a way that I think does make it very different from any of the other major economies with which you know, the wider world is, is having to deal at the moment. What I mean by that is this. Some of the things that Lynn was talking about in terms of the way in which society conditions you to act in certain ways. And I'm going to put some propositions down. I'd love to hear if Lynn agrees with me or not. She may completely disagree uh, and have no respect whatsoever, which would be great, of course. But here's some thoughts. In the 1950s and 1960s, one of the things that most animated the communist revolution of the era of Chairman Mao, you know, a name that everyone will know, they don't necessarily have the details, was a desire to overturn gender norms in China. Chairman Mao, being a man who, for his own reasons of sort of philosophical background, was dedicated in a way that, you know, I find, frankly, very, very distressing, very dedicated to a kind of violent overturning of society, which is what people mostly associate with the, the famous cultural revolution of the 60s. Part of his aim was to try and sort of shake the entire society out of social norms. One of the things that was done at that time was to take young women, I mean, not Lynn, who's far too young, but maybe, you know, people she would know from grandparents' generations, you know, to put on clothes, you know, sort of baggy green military uniforms that would not be gendered as either male or female, but basically as unisex. And then to go to Tiananmen Square and to, you know, be in this huge crowd of a million students in front of the glorious God that was Chairman Mao and start yelling and screaming. Very, very unfeminine thing to do in most societies, but certainly in the case of China. There's a famous incident, famous in China anywhere, where you know one of these young red guards, as they were called in the Cultural Revolution, was brought out to Chairman Mao and uh, he said, what's your name? And uh, I believe it's correct, her, her personal name was uh, Binbin, which just means kind of refined or nice. And he said, that's not a name for a girl. You should be renamed Yao Wu, meaning sort of desiring martiality or kind of wanting to be more military. In other words, saying, look, you can't have this kind of traditional feminine image. If you want to get with the Cultural Revolution, you've got to actually change your name, you've got to change your image, you've got to change the way you behave. Now, let's just say for a moment that the methods of the Cultural Revolution of China are rejected today by almost all Chinese, let alone by anyone else in the rest of the world. Let's, let's not make a mistake about that. But that wider quest that's been going on for a century in China, in trying to overturn some of those norms that we're talking about, it's not that China doesn't know about it doesn't think about it, doesn't actually have its own debates about exactly these issues. You know, young professional women in China and the way that they behave at work and at home was the subject, Lynn will correct me here, I think this is right, of the biggest hit TV series in China last year, which you can see, by the way, free on YouTube with English subtitles. It's called Nothing But 30, and it's about the kind of travails of young Shanghai business women and whether they should get married and whether being married, they should stay married and this sort of thing. These are lively debates in China, too. And what I'm trying to get away from is the idea that there's some sort of Chinese culture which shapes women or men or business people or historians, or whatever it might be, which the West is then there to sort of influence and change and make more dynamic. It's actually an interaction between the two. And we can both learn from each other. But Lynn, could I ask you directly, is that how it might seem to you? No, I think it's a very, very interesting point because um, nothing can compare with the changes that we have experienced from, to your point about the experience of my grandparents, to the to experience of my parents and then to where we are. And then in terms of the one-child policy, actually, I see this as a 
a huge disruption to the gender equality. Because if you tell the parents who can only have one child that their daughter is anything less than the boy, then they're not going to accept that. So in a way, actually elevates women not as intentional consequence, but actually promoting a lot of the ambition of the Chinese woman. So so I, I do think a lot of it is not just political, it's not just economical, it's much more cultural and it's much more universal. So on that point, I, I do share that view. Well, I think this is a great moment to turn to Cynthia Akinsanya for some research to support today's discussion. The 2021 Herbert Smith Freehills article in Lexology, Where Are the Asian Leaders in Global C-Suites?, looks at how the absence of East Asian leaders in C-suites and boardrooms of global multinational companies is particularly surprising when taking into account the fact that we are now living in what many are calling the Asian century. The number of Asian professionals seeking opportunities in America and Europe continues to increase. It is estimated that 60 million Chinese-born professionals now live and work overseas, making them the largest migrant group in the world. The article looks at dissecting the bamboo ceiling, the future of Asian leadership, adjusting to the Eastern mindset and the importance of the case for greater diversity. Thank you, as always, Cynthia Akinsanya. So let me just take a few moments to remind everybody how to find that research. It's available on the website diversecitypodcast.com. Don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S. And that's where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings and also our newsletter, DE&I, that caught our eye, which has a collection of the latest in the press and the industry to keep you on your toes and well-informed. Please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn and Diversity Podcast is available on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. Of course, we'd love a rating because it does all help to promote the show. Now, I mentioned before we came into the break about the very important topic around Asian hate crime. And I wonder, Lynn, we were sort of talking separately in preparation for this podcast about your thoughts about the reality of what COVID has meant and how this has felt and impacted employees in the workforce. And particularly starting with some remarks about, you know, essentially you are the first generation, if you like. Mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I think that the first generation translates into, this is very much a learning curve for us, but it's also a learning curve for organizations who have recruited us. But I think generally speaking, the Chinese professionals also face um, a different layer of complexity, which is, Say when we talk about black professionals, that is very much a race concept. But when it comes to Chinese, often that direct association is not race. It comes back to the country. And then you mentioned the COVID-19. There is a lot of negativity towards the country. So I think the key macroaggressions, many of the Chinese and sadly, you know, East Asians and Southeast Asian professionals face is this negativity towards the country and then the associated hostility towards its people at work. And we all know career advancement is a series of advantages and disadvantages. This kind of negative association is not helpful for anyone who wants to progress in their career. And then also just being exposed to a lot of negative crime or negative news that adds a lot of psychological stress to this Asian or Southeast and 
Chinese Asian employees, which uh, I think we can do a lot about. And I think it's really important for leaders to be on high alert that this is absolutely going on in their organisations as well. Uh, Rana, I'd love your thoughts on that, if you would. Yeah, no, I mean, I want to echo very much what Lynn says. I'm thinking of one particular friend who I think I know, in fact, she would call us a British Chinese or Chinese British, depending how she's feeling that morning. But, you know, very much someone who was born and brought up in mainland China in the way that uh, Lynn was as well. So, you know, not just of Chinese heritage, but actually from, from China in some meaningful sense, and certainly bilingual. And one of her great complaints, you know, said with great good humour, she's not in finance, she's in a, another professional area, uh, is that she's often, too often approached as if she should be the sort of house representative for, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and all of its activities. And I should point out, there's no reason that anyone who, you know, has met her for five seconds should have either any idea or any right to know what she thinks of the Chinese Communist Party or any particular thing that goes on in China or elsewhere without actually having got to know her first. In other words, the sort of sense that she ought to be a sort of representative for an entire system just because of her presence there is in many ways actually deeply offensive. Uh, in fact, as you can imagine, and frankly, like you know, pretty much all the Chinese professionals I know in, in all areas, there's a range and spectrum of views. The difficulty comes, and I think it's worth, you know, putting this up front and again, you know, Lin may agree or disagree with this, you know, really just to hear your views, is that because China itself within the People's Republic is an authoritarian state which heavily limits freedom of speech, has a lot of censorship, and also has been moving in a more authoritarian direction, as most analysts would say in the last five to ten years, there's an assumption that therefore anyone who comes out of China must have one set of views and one set of views only. And in fact, that is a point of view that can be dispelled simply by having a chat with any group of, of Chinese professionals on almost any subject you can think of. But it is, in a sense, a burden that's being placed that any one representative in a professional environment is having to sort of take on the role of speaking for the entirety of a country and a system. In the same sort of way, uh, but it's not quite the same, but you know, perhaps a parallel that I think of is that I work professionally and have done on China for you know more than 30 years as a historian and analyst of its contemporary politics. And I hope it's evident to anyone who you know, wants to go online and read the work that I have, that there are many aspects of contemporary China that I think are impressive and should be better understood, and many aspects of China's current behavior, which should be called out very strongly because I think it's entirely wrong. And these things are perfectly capable of being held in the same mind at the same time and discussed as part of a wider rational and informed discourse about what we will think that we can talk about and areas where we think we have red lines. Ron, thank you for your thoughts on that. And Lynn, I would love to get your response, but unfortunately we are out of time. So I just want to ask you both, if you would, just very quickly for your uh, your final remarks to close out the show. It's a question I ask all our guests, which is um, being slightly concerned about the pathway ahead in terms of our economic priorities and our commercial priorities. I am worried that the diversity, equity and inclusion conversation may well fall down the corporate agenda. To see us out, I would love to get your closing remarks about why it must remain high. Rana, I'm going to come to you first of all, if you would. Yeah, I'm going to give a parallel from my own world, which is higher education in the university sector. And I would say that almost as a matter of basic good practice, if you don't have a range of diverse viewpoints and experiences and bodies of knowledge within your educational institution, you are self-limiting what you can teach and what you can learn. You know, in the case of the area that I specialize on, 
clearly having people who are Chinese or who know China who've engaged with it is very important. But I think actually it can be expanded to almost any aspect of, uh, of study. It is notable that some of the most successful laboratories in the world are those that draw on a whole variety of people from whatever country, whatever background, who are very, very good at whatever the subject is. And I think that translates across all sorts of professional environments. Absolutely. And Lynn, uh, see us out on the show with your compelling reasons why it must remain high. Think about um, the future of the board. This is no longer just about profitability, but also inclusivity. And if you think about what's driving innovation, very rarely it's about a brand new idea anymore, because more often than not, it's a combination of ideas. It's not about new information, but a new perspective. So coupled with the rise of China, which is fundamentally a very different kind of system, diversity couldn't be more relevant. And I think that's what's really going to drive the performance, innovation and growth for business. What a great way to end the show. Rana Mitta, thank you so much for being on the show for all your thoughts. Thanks very much indeed, Julia. It's been a huge pleasure. And Lynn, you're on maternity leave. You've taken time to join us. We're most grateful. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Thank you so much. So to all our listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion as much as I have. I've been Julia Streets, and we look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.